Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, open our heart to you. Open us to your word. Speak to us this morning. Cause us to be shaped by it. In Christ's name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What makes you mad? Oh, a few people know the answer. I could hear by your giggles. What makes you mad? You and your compatriots. What makes you mad? I think that's a question worth thinking about, pondering, as we confront today's gospel, this gospel passage that takes place in Jesus' hometown. Jesus' hometown is mad. Now let's backtrack a minute. You, you remember last week, or as they might say on a TV show, previously, <laughs> and then you have the scenes. We know that Jesus' popularity had been increasing. Uh, he was beginning his ministry, and the word was out. He was glorified by all, we're told. And um, then he returns to his hometown. And we heard Jamie describe it. He takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and reads these wonderful words. You almost want to hear them again this year, this, this week. Uh, th- these words about God bringing good news to the poor, remember? Uh, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and then finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a wonderful, hopeful encouraging message, especially to those in Jesus' hometown who who didn't feel exactly free. And then, remember, as Jamie described it, the drumbeat gets quiet. The spotlight zooms in on Jesus, darkening everything around it. Although I told Jamie earlier that I actually think there probably would be sort of cutaway cutaway shots of the audience seeing their quizzical or scowling looks, right? In the, but right back then to Jesus' face, their eyes are all fixed on Jesus. And those powerful words, hopeful, audacious, could they even be crazy? Today, today, these words have been fulfilled in your presence. Well, depending on how you look at it, right? It's come true. Really? They're thinking, really? In you? How? In you? Now, the, the passage said they all spoke well of him, but that... Well, speaking well of him, it, it's, uh, it, it could be heard different ways. Notice how they speak of him. It's kind of condescending, right? And there is that piece of it, even though we hear speaking well as meaning all positive. But it isn't, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't, we, didn't, didn't he grow up around us? And he's saying he's the fulfillment of Isaiah. What? What? Anyway, however you look at it, it's a very different picture than just seven verses later, right? All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. It's a strong word, not just anger, wrath. 
They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down off the cliff. The first step in stoning, it's clear. It's a murderous crowd. You threw someone off the cliff, knocked them out, and then you took head size, stones, threw him down till he was surely dead. That's what this crowd turned into. This is Jesus' hometown crowd. He grew up with them. And now they're throwing him off the cliff, throwing rocks on top of him? What did he do that could be deserving of such a thing? I mean, no matter what he said, can you imagine being that angry? Why? Why did Jesus' hometown want to kill him? What, what could he have said, this popular rabbi, one of their own? Well, let's backtrack once again. Let's look at Jesus' audience. And then let's look at his words. First of all, he's in Nazareth, his hometown. Nazareth is in Galilee. Ja Galilee is called by Isaiah and later by Matthew as Galilee of the Gentiles. Some of you will remember that. Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is what Nazareth was. It was an enclave, like this little enclave of Jews, pure Jews. The community was all Jewish, well, mostly anyway, in the midst of Galilee, which was mostly all Gentile, made up of the Roman oppressors and some of the others whom they've oppressed, Gentiles. So you know what happens to an enclave in the midst of hostile territory, right? And these were Jews. They prided themselves on their purity to God's word and they were nationalistic, they understood their meaning in life to be that eventually they would overtake Galilee for God so that Galilee would no longer be Galilee of the Gentiles but become Galilee of the Jews. That was their raison d'etre. That's what they lived for. And they expected that God was on their side. This is what God wanted too. And they expected that it would be God himself who equipped them to overthrow their captors. And they expected a Messiah. A Messiah who would lead them into victory. And we sing songs about Jesus leading us into victory. We don't mean what they meant. They literally meant victory over their oppressors. They expected to overthrow their Roman oppressors with God's help and with the Messiah leading the way. They longed to overthrow the Romans just as those in Isaiah's day longed to overthrow the Babylonians and then the Persians. And they understood Isaiah to be saying that this was God's purpose too. Isaiah's words resound hope for this embattled people. God would intervene, bringing good news, freedom, and sight to his beloved people, turning things right side up again, finally. But then there is what Jesus didn't say, the part of Isaiah 61 that Jesus didn't read, that he omitted. And I've learned most of this from my dear friend and mentor, the late Ken Bailey. 
He told me that when Jesus reads to proclaim the day of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, which Jamie explained to us, refers to the year of Jubilee, he leaves out the very next phrase. It's part of the same verse. And do you know what that is? And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves it out. But the Nazarenes didn't leave it out, even though he didn't say it. They noticed it. For Nazareth, the year of the Lord's favor meant the day of vengeance, that God would take vengeance on the Gentiles. He will overthrow and destroy them. It's about destroying those who have been trying to destroy them. For Nazareth, this is the ultimate God is, in our side, God is on our side passage, right? And it means only one thing. God is not on their side. So when Jesus leaves that half verse out, his listeners are irritated, to say the least. He's left out the most important part of this verse. What kind of Nazarene are you anyway, Jesus? They must have thought. But then, even worse, do you know what else he left out? The rest of the passage. Let me read you a little bit from that passage later in 61. Isaiah says, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. You know nations and Gentiles are the same word, right? So hear that picture? See that picture? The strangers, the foreigners, our oppressors, they're the ones who are going to tend our flocks, grow our crops, plow, dress our vines, and we're going to be priests sitting at the gate and studying the Torah, and we'll eat the wealth, their wealth. It's all for us. They're going to serve us as they've made us serve them. Jesus skips this, goes right over it. So his listeners are angry. He's left out the very thing they're hoping for, what gives them hope. And if that isn't enough, Jesus keeps going. Adding insult to injury, what Jesus says next, is even more infuriating. Uh, you heard it a minute ago. You've said, you'll probably quote the, the proverb, physician, heal thyself. Do in your hometown he, the, what you've done in Capernaum. I mean, don't we deserve it? We're your people, after all. If you're so great, why aren't you doing those miracles here? And Jesus goes on, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Clearly, Jesus recognizes what he's already done. He ex he's expecting their negative reaction. It's purposeful. They're primed. He, he didn't just happen to do something that made them angry. Uh-uh. He did this on purpose. So you think at a point like this, you know, you're going to quote this to me, prophet isn't recognized in his own hometown. You're thinking 
In the normal course of events, if you were in a situation like this, in Jesus' shoes, you'd say, oh no, I didn't really mean it like that. You gotta hear it this way and start interpreting, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He makes it worse. He tells them two stories, two um, miraculous healing stories, stories of God's blessing. But notice who God blesses. First, three and a half years of famine, lots of starving Israelites. Jesus says, but who does Elijah go to? This poor widow in Zarephath, Sidon. She's a Phoenician. She's a Gentile. Elisha goes to her, and she's starving, right? She's on her last meal, and he says, feed me. She says, I have nothing to feed you with. I'm about to die, so, and so is my son. Trust me, and she trusts him, and her food never runs out while Elijah's there, right? There were many starving widows in those days, but Elijah went to this Gentile. Can you imagine how that sounds to a Nazarene? given what I've just told you about their background? They're really mad. And then he goes on, even more. And there were many lepers in Elisha's time, he said. But Elisha only went to Naaman. Naaman, the Syrian, the Gentile Syrian, doesn't even worship God. He gets blessed by God? And these other lepers of Israel don't? Jesus says that. Jesus says that. There were many lepers in Israel, but Elisha went to a Gentile. Cleanse this Gentile. Notice too, right? Poor and rich. Poor widow, rich name and commander, important guy. Female, male, both. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is open to all. He's saying what his ministry, the wor same words that, his, um, that Matthew and Mark record at the beginning of his ministry. Remember? Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, is here, but is accessible. It's accessible to everyone. Now, you know that God loves outsiders. That's true from the beginning in scripture to the end, but God's people over and over forget that. And in any case, Nazarenes wanted nothing to do with that kind of God. They're furious at Jesus, furious, beyond angry, wrathful, murderously wrathful. How dare Jesus suggest that God loves Gentiles more than them? more than his chosen ones. How dare he suggest that God would choose a Phoenician woman and a Syrian man over the faithful people of Israel? How dare he? We're God's chosen people, they're saying. We're the ones who get blessed, and when we get blessed, that means they don't. They get cursed. They get oppressed. And so they try to stone him. But somehow, Jesus escapes. I have a friend who says it was on the Sabbath, and she thinks the reason he escaped is he walked just a little too far past the Sabbath day journey that they were allowed. I, I don't know. It's a fun idea. Who knows how he escaped? He was always getting out of trouble in those early days. Now, let me ask, 
a question we all should be asking. Why in the world would Jesus try to make his hometown angry? I'm sure you've noticed that a lot about Jesus. He seems to try to make a lot of people mad. Like you hear these stories of people who haven't read the Gospels who think Jesus is, you know, they say, oh, Jesus is a sweet young teacher. You know, they haven't read it. I mean, Jesus is always being provocative. He says it to the Pharisees and the, I mean, you're surprised he hasn't died sooner than he ends up dying because he's provocative. He, you know, and it's purposely provocative. Why did he do this in his hometown? I think he does it to reveal to them their deeply embedded assumptions. We are chosen. We are the one God's love that God loves. And the fact that we're chosen means they aren't. They get God's vengeance. We get God's love. Jesus wanted them to see how deeply embedded that was, how much a part of their belief system that was. And why? Because he wanted them to align their hearts with God's heart. He was trying to shock them out of where they were, recognizing where they were. He was trying to call them back to remind them that God's heart is always for the outsiders, for those in need. God's heart is tender. He cares for the brokenhearted. He's trying to call them to align with the God who sees chosenness as an invitation to join God on his mission, not to clobber those we hate or dismiss. Chosenness is a privilege meant to allow us, empower us to participate in God's desire to seek and serve the lost. In fact, participating in God's mission is the blessing, is the blessing. And we get to do this, right? We get to love with God's love those who are unlovable, beyond the pale. We get that. We get to do that. That's part of what chosenness, that's blessing, enables us to do the unthinkable. Now, most of you, I'm seeing a couple of you nod. You know this, right? You know you go to minister to someone, to reach out to someone. And who gets reached out to? We do. You go to love someone, care for them. Who gets cared for? We do. We get to do this. We think it's going to be so hard. We brace ourselves. And who gets blessed? We get way more blessed than the people we think we're blessing. That's what Jesus wants the Nazarenes to know. And us to know, by the way. You know, that's what it means to have chains broken. That's what it means to be released from bondage. That's what it means to be able to be blind and now to see. It means that we see the way God sees. It means we're empowered to release the captives with him. It's easy to judge these Nazarenes, isn't it? 
How quick they are to dismiss God's word. Can you believe they got that mad that they were going to kill the son of God? Can you believe it? How quick they are to miss the blessings that Jesus is calling them to, inviting them into. How quick they are to miss participating in God's big mission to the whole world. It's quick to judge them. But you know, whenever we are quick to judge someone who gets judged, right? What about us? I think this passage is an opportunity for us, each of us, and all of us together to do a heart check. It has been for me in the last few weeks as I've been looking at this passage, and this is the third time I've preached it each time. I'm like, okay, enough. You know, I mean, where are our hearts not aligned with God's? Where are our hearts falling short of the heart of Jesus? Where is yours, mine? I think it's easy for us. We've been blessed, right? This congregation has been blessed. Yes, we've been through some hard times, but haven't we been blessed? It's easy to assume that our devotion to Jesus, our openness to the Spirit and to the Scriptures, the blessings we've received make us special. And they do. But what is this specialness meant to look like? Vengeance? or blessing of others. Who are we? Who am I hardening my heart toward that I should be blessing? Am I participating in God's desire to bless unexpected ones? Or do I want vengeance of of some sort? This is the part that keeps getting me each service. I mean, 1 Corinthians was an interesting case, right? We heard a passage from it this week, and we heard last week all about gifts. They knew they were special. They had been over, overflow, you know, the, overpowered by the Holy Spirit. All kinds of gifts, more than any other church. But they thought of that specialness as a sign of how great they were and for their own good rather than being sensitive to outsiders. That's what this passage was all about, right? Their specialness ended up being focused on themselves instead of the whole point of their specialness was to give grace to others, to the outsiders, and to welcome them in so that they too might participate in God's good things. So let me ask you again, what makes you mad or Who makes you mad? And what would Jesus say about that? Is it the same thing that makes God mad? And that's a whole other sermon, right? Because lots of things make God mad. But are the things that make us mad the same things that make God mad? And would what Jesus would say to you or me make us ready to throw him over the cliff? You know, in our polarized society, I'm worried about that for us, all of us. That we'll cut people off that God intends us to bless and actually miss the blessing that comes from doing that, however hard it is. You know, people on both sides of the aisle these days have deeply held Christian beliefs. 
and deeply embedded cultural ideals, which they are sure are God's ideals too. But many of which, those cultural ideals, Jesus would challenge because he does that in every culture. He challenges cultural ideals that fall short of God's ideals. That's what he did with the Nazarenes, challenged their cultural ideals that were not aligned, not aligned with God's, even though they thought they were. And I wonder, what would he say to me? Or, or, or more, really, what is he saying to me about that? What, which of my beliefs are not aligned with God's? Which of my opinions of others are not aligned with God's? What words from Jesus or from his ambassadors make me angry? Or would make me angry if I listened enough? What words would make you angry? Or us as a people angry? Would we or will we remember that Jesus challenges us. He's willing to make us angry in order to wake us up to the ways in which our ways are not his ways. Our agendas are not his agendas. Could we pay attention to that anger? Could we pay attention and ask God to show us? Could we recognize it sometimes as a push from God? to look deeper? And could we thank him for that wake-up call even though we don't like it? Could we repent? Could we ask him to realign our agendas with his? Because we sure aren't up to it. We need his help for that. Could we receive release from our captivity, our hard-heartedness, or Will we be like those Nazarenes who just got mad, so mad, they were ready to throw the Savior of the world off a cliff and to stone him? Which will it be for us? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know our hearts better than we do. And we, this morning, are brave enough to ask you to look at them, even if it makes us angry when you tell us what you see. Will you align our hearts with yours more fully, each of us and all of us together? Will you help us to experience your blessing as a call to bless others? We know you want to, so we say yes. In Christ's name, amen.